Good morning. If we have not met, my name is Tom Ellenboss. I would love to meet you. Uh, Jordan mentioned earlier that we're a part of a family of churches, and so I work for that family of churches, and so I get around to the different churches every once in a while and get to, to share the word with you and get to meet you, and so would love to connect this morning if you have a chance. We are in the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in the book of Genesis for a, a long time. I think we're 40 weeks. Originally, we said 39, and we we're like, well, the biblical number is 40, so I think we shifted it to 40, right? But uh, 40 weeks in Genesis, which you might feel like, well, that's a lot of time in one book, but there's so much in this book. And actually, one of the things I've been a little frustrated is we're going too fast. <laughs> there's, there's so much in the Bible. There's so much in these passages. Uh, I was just surprised, like, oh, man, we're already out of the early part of Genesis. But this morning, we're going to be in Genesis 6 and 7. So if you, uh, I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, ask for one. Uh, Jordan can get you one. He's got some around here, I know. Or the Bible app on your phone is super, super easy to use, and there's some great devotions and stuff in there. Um, would love to have you, you connect. This morning, we're going to take a look at the story in, um, in chapter 6 and 7 of the flood. And whether you grew up in a church or not, whether you grew up around the Bible or not, my guess is that you know the flood story. It's one of these stories that just kind of gets out there in the culture and we kind of grab onto it. We all kind of know the story of Noah somehow, right? We know that there was evil on the earth. We know that God decided to bring a flood on the earth. We know that God told Noah to build an ark, this huge boat, uh, because he was going to bring the flood. We know that the people around him mocked him and thought that he was crazy because Noah was the first prepper, after all, right? He was the first prepper. We know that God asked Noah to put only two of every kind of animal in the ark. We know it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and we know that after 40 days and 40 nights, Noah and his family were finally able to leave the ark. We know that eventually the waters receded. We know that Noah let all the animals go back into the world. And we know that Noah and his family started again. We know the story, right? I mean, we know like the basic parts of the story. Or do we? Or do we? I just read 10 things to you. I had that list there. Four of those 10 things aren't true. Did you catch them? It's interesting, isn't it, that sometimes we have sort of this mental imagery of the Bible or the stories in the Bible, and we capture stuff and we don't actually read our Bible, we miss a whole bunch of stuff, or we believe things that aren't actually in there. Um, I used to, a little side project of mine a few years back is I used to do editing for Zondervan Children's Bibles, okay? Just a funny little side project. They paid me a couple bucks to do it, and I actually eventually got fired, uh, <laughs> They stopped using me because they'd send me these children's Bibles, and I'd say, well, that's not the real story, right? Like, so if you grew up on children's Bibles and you haven't actually read the scriptures, you may be missing something. Because, you know, we think of the flood story as a children's story. It's, it's not a children's story, first of all. Um, there's a whole bunch in there. There's a lot that's not in there that maybe you believe. Uh, let me, you want me to tell you the things that, we, that, that weren't true of the list of ten? You're, you're dying to know, aren't you? I could just leave it, and you have to go look. No, I'll tell you. Okay. First of all, there's no mocking neighbors in the story. No mocking neighbors. That probably came through your children's uh, Bible at some point. You know, you're kind of filling the blanks. doesn't mean they didn't mock him, but it's not there in the scriptures. Uh, second, God does not tell Noah to pull only two of every animal in the ark. Did you know that? 
There's seven of every clean animal, which is really interesting. It says, take seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive. So we, it's interesting, we like focus on the two. We focus on the unclean, not the clean. And actually, that's a really important part of the story, um, why there's seven. I'll leave that on you, let you figure that one out. Third, it did rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but they were actually in the ark way longer than that. If you do the math and you try to figure out the math, we don't know exactly how their months and everything worked, but um, it's about a year that they were actually in the ark. Uh, one scholar I read said 364 days, one day shy of our, uh, our uh, year. Uh, lastly, not all the animals uh, went back into the world again. And here's the answer to the question of the seven. Why seven? Here's uh, what we read uh, in the end of chapter seven. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. You see, Noah knew that he had to sacrifice to God when he got off the ark. Can you imagine if he only took two of each and be like, oh, shoot. Which one's going to be extinct now? We've got to decide that today. That would have been a bad, a bad deal. So he, uh, God told them to take those on so that they could sacrifice a burnt offering uh, afterwards. Why do, I, why do I mention all these things? Uh, apart from getting you to laugh a little bit and connect this morning. I mention it because you're, um, I, I almost always start here uh, in my sermons. Uh, reading the Bible closely matters. Uh, I've said this probably every time I've been here. If, you've only, if you're only relying on your children's Bible or maybe the Noah movie, like you're really missing the scriptures and what it actually says. There may be more there, and there may be less there than you think. And we talk a lot in Harbor Churches about context, and the context really matters in seeing what's there. So slowing down, reading slowly, paying attention. That's why I feel like we're going through Genesis too fast because I, li- I like to read the Bible slow because there's so much in there and the Holy Spirit continues to every time you read it. Now, I'm 50 years old. I've been reading the Bible since I was a little kid, since I could read, and every time I read it, I find new stuff. And I, I was studying these passages this week and found, again, some stuff I hadn't seen before. Uh, and it's just the, the Holy Spirit's always speaking to you through the Scripture. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to do two major things. I want to encourage you first to to read chapters 6 and 7 on your own today. I'm not going to read through those. They're long. Uh, I want you to read through chapters 6 and 7. We have this little devotional if you haven't seen it. Um, if you have gotten the devotional already, we're kind of on page 73-ish, and this week goes through chapters 6 and 7. There's some really good questions in there. There are eight of these left. One's right here. There's seven more on the table. That's, I think, all we have. So uh, if, if you need one and you don't have one, you know, maybe we can photocopy pages and get you something. But that would, might help you to go through it. There's a daily reading. But I want you to read through there, and I want you to ask yourself some questions when you go through it. You should have questions of the Bible. I'm not going to answer all the questions in 6 and 7 today. There's way too many. For instance, here's one. Uh, in this passage, in chapter 6, we hear about the Nephilim. One of my big questions. It says this, The sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. And then it talks about the heroes of old men of renown. I've heard that there's some connection with the Nephilim to giants. And there's a connection in Deuteronomy and Numbers to that. And like that fascinates me. Because I'm like, there were giants? You should ask questions. Sometimes you don't get answers to your questions. But sometimes your questions lead you to some great places. So number two, so I want you to read the Bible, ask the questions, write the questions down, seek out the answers. Sometimes you'll find them, sometimes you won't. 
Uh, I want to focus on a, a couple things, though, this morning that I encountered while studying these chapters uh, this week. Um, again, one last thing about reading your Bible. I know I, I probably said this before, maybe you haven't heard me say this, or you, you're new and you haven't heard me around this, but I have a friend, a pastor named Wayne Cordero, and he says this. He says, God has already highlighted your Bible for you today and what he wants you to see there, but you're not going to see it unless you open and look for the highlight. I find that when I read the Bible, I find the highlight. It's like, oh, what's that doing there? And God is trying to say something to me. So look for the highlight in the passage. Last week, if you're here, Jordan kind of ended the sermon talking about God regretting or being sorry or having this sort of, I think Jordan said, a deep sigh for having created the world and having created humans because there was so much evil in the world. And he he just kind of stopped there and asked you to to ponder, you know, what is it in your life? Is there a cycle of sin that you're caught in that God might be regretting? And that's the backstory. That's sort of coming up to that point where God looks on the earth and goes, what What happened? I created this to be good, and there's so much evil here. And God is regretful or sorrowful or grieving or there's this deep, deep, deep sigh. Okay, we're going to dig in, okay? We're going to dig in just to a couple verses today. We're going to dig into chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. So if you have a Bible or phone, it'll also come up on the screen. I think we'll leave it up there for a little bit. Um, I want to focus on chapter 6, 11 and 12. It's actually, uh, as I studied this, uh, it's actually, I, th- I think it's a little poem, uh, it's a little vignette uh, that comes in the midst of the story because uh, the writer talks about God regretting and then he kind of goes back to the narrative, right? So God feels this way, there's this heavy sigh and then he goes back to the narrative and begins to talk about Noah and his kids again and all that. And then there's this little kind of poem stuck in there uh, or little vignette, uh, verses 11, 12. It goes like this. It's gonna read a little differently than in your NIV, um, and uh, I, I wanted you to see some things, so I kind of put this in, uh, in some different words using, uh, using a bunch of translations and the Hebrew. So uh, you can look it up on the screen. Now, the earth was corrupt before the face of God, and the earth was full of violence. So God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Okay, so that's the little poem. Uh, not a happy poem, Right? This is a a lament. Uh, There's something really interesting, several really interesting things going on here. I want to try to draw those out uh, to you. Remember, a few verses earlier, God sees the wickedness of human beings on the earth, and he sees their inclination or their, like, uh, propensity or their desire uh, for evil, and his first reaction is this, like, sorrow or regret. Like, ah, I'm sorry I did this, Right? Sorry, sorry I made humans. He has this decision that he makes to blot out humans from the face of the earth. Now, at that point, again, I said ask questions of the Bible. That's okay. It's okay to ask questions. Uh, just don't get angry when you can't find the answers because sometimes they're just not there, but the questions will draw you closer to, to God and he will meet you in those questions. But I read that and I, and I ask a bunch of questions. I'm like, why does God give up on everybody except for Noah? Why everybody except for Noah? And then I, then I get a little moralistic and I say, well, is it okay for God to wipe out all the people on the earth? As if I'm kind of, you know, judging God a little bit. We do that, right? I, I have some questions about that. What, what does this mean for those of us who have children 
uh, who walk away from God and they enter into a kind of a sinful life and end up in chaotic situations. If you're a parent, you sort of ask different questions. I do. If my kids walk away and they enter, if the inclinations of their heart move towards evil, I just wipe them off the face of the earth. Well, that doesn't feel good, does it? Now, that creates a lot of questions for me. And it should create questions for you. And I honestly I don't know the answers to all those questions, which makes me dig in more. I go, huh, maybe I don't know enough about the story. Maybe I don't know enough about God. Maybe I don't know enough about what's going on here. I want to dig in more to what's happening. So we may not agree with God here. We may not understand why God would blot out humans. But I want to show you a couple other things that I, I kind of discovered as I went through that. Let me ask you a question. Um, well, I'll tell you a story first. How's that? So I've started, uh, last couple of years, I started watercoloring. Um, you might have seen my posts on Facebook. Uh, I don't post anything about anything except for, you know, baking bread and watercolors because it's fun. Maybe my kids every once in a while because social media is a place that I just have found is not a safe place these days. So anyway, uh, I've been watercoloring and occasionally I'll attempt something. I'll attempt to paint something and it does not turn out. Now, you haven't seen those posts, because I don't post those, right? Sometimes I get done, and I go, oh, I regret doing that, right? Now, that's not even close to what God is experiencing, but I have a picture in my head of something I want to accomplish and I want to do, and, it, and guess what I do with those things? I crumple them up and I throw them away, right? So that impulse the impulse to respond may be similar. I wonder, um, have you ever really poured yourself into something and it didn't turn out the way it should have? I wonder what emotions come up in your heart. For God, we hear sorrow. Uh, I wonder if we get angry. Do you, do you ever get angry? You put, you put your heart and soul into something and then it doesn't turn out the way you thought it was going to. You plan an event and then everything goes south. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it is your children, right? You pour into your children and, and they, they don't make the choices that you want them to make. Is there any anger in there, mixed in there? Maybe we get angry, maybe we turn away, or maybe we ignore it and we just pretend it didn't happen. I want to I wanna look, uh, look at God's response here. I want to dig into that feeling a little bit, that regret piece. And I want you to notice two things in the stories. The first is something that is there, and then I want you to notice something that isn't there, okay? Something that is there and something that isn't there. Okay, first, uh, let's notice in this little poem, the writer's already told us in verses five and six that Jordan talked about last week, that God is regretfully sor- sorry and painfully grieving. And he even seems to move on by telling us in verses nine and 10 that Noah was a righteous man and he had three sons. So there's this, like, turn in the text. God is sorrowful and he's regretting, and he kind of goes back to the story. So Noah was a righteous man, and he had three sons. But then he turns the thread of the story um, back, back to the creation and then back to what God is doing here. And God created people to be good. God created us for goodness, but now people have become evil all the time. And God decides to hit the reset button, to blot humans out from the earth. And here's a small detail I want you to notice. Okay, let's put that passage back up, okay? Now, the earth was corrupt, and uh, this is why I say this is a poem, because there's some repetition in here, and you can see it a little more in the original language, but now the earth was corrupt before the face of God, okay? What this is basically saying is like, uh, you ever heard the phrase, in your face, right? So this is basically saying that the earth was corrupt in, in the face of God, like it was right up in his face. Notice what happens, and the earth was full of violence, so God 
looked upon the earth. So there's two, there's two different words for this kind of looking and facing. It comes up in front of God's face, and God has a choice, right? So imagine something uh, ugly, something terrible, something that like, makes you feel horrible comes up in your face. What's your choice, right? You're forced just to react against it. Your choice is to stand silent in front of it. Your choice is maybe to turn away there's all kinds of choices that happens. Maybe, uh, especially if you're a parent, you've had this moment, right? When your kids are all up in your face. But doesn't that happen to you? No, never, right? That's happened to me occasionally, right? And I have some choices to make as a parent. God has a choice here too. Um, he has the opportunity, to re- he can turn away because he's too disappointed to, re- to respond. He can react in anger and he can let his justice rain down. Maybe you can sort of see your own parenting style in here, but notice what, notice what the poem does in line three. So God looked upon the earth. Now, it's not super strong there, but God looked upon the earth. See, God doesn't turn his face away. In fact, I, I struggle to talk about Hebrew because I know that you don't know Hebrew, right? Um, I don't know Hebrew very well either. I took it years ago, but there are some good resources to look into it. I know Jordan mentions it every once in a while, too. It's really helpful to dig into some of this stuff and find out. The word for look, uh, it's not just, oh, I, you know, I, looked, I looked and saw. It's like pay attention, examine, take a close look, uh, assess. This is like a, an attentive looking. So the evil comes up in the face of God, and God decides not to turn away, but actually to look at it. God faces it. He's got this deep feeling of sorrow, of disappointment, of regret. And he says, you know what, I'm going I'm to face it. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going I'm to look. I'm gonna, I imagine God, in a sense, wrestling with what he sees. It's not flippant that God responds in the flood. He looks. So that's something that's there, okay? Do you see it? See it in the palm there, right? Came up in his face, and God actually presses in. He presses in. He doesn't pull back. Okay, that's the thing that's in there. Now, the thing that's not there, this is what I think is always interesting, is to pay attention to what's not in the text that you might expect to be there. Um, the writer does talk about his reactions and his emotions, right? Talks about God regretting, you know, those kind of things. Jordan talked about this deep kind of sorrow. But notice this. There is no mention of God being angry. There's no mention of God being angry in this story. In fact, you may or not know this, but God is never described as being angry in the Bible until the book of Exodus. The whole book of Genesis, God is not described as angry at all. We assume, well, I'll just say I, because maybe you don't. I sort of assume when I read these stories that, that God is angry, and maybe, maybe we picture God as angry. Maybe you've always pictured God as angry in here, but if you read the story, and I, again, don't believe me, right? Don't take my word for it. Go and look. Read chapter 6 and 7 this week. Read the whole book of Genesis. Uh, take a look. Try to find God's anger there. The, uh, the Bible tends to talk about um, anger. Is a, it's, it's kind of a word picture. It's a, it, it's a red nose or a red face. Why is that, right? When you're angry, you ever get like flushed cheeks or, right? God is not seen as having a red nose in the book of Genesis, so I just, want, I just want you to sit in that for a minute. Humans have violated and corrupted the good creation. 
Death is everywhere. And there's, as it says, nothing but violence everywhere all the time. And God's not depicted as angry. Let me, let me go back. If you haven't been there the last couple of weeks, and I don't know if they talked about it here, but um, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve do the opposite of what God tells them to do, go back and read it. It doesn't say God is angry. In fact, God walks in the garden in the cool of the day after they've sinned. God moves towards them. He doesn't turn away in anger. Or he doesn't come at them in anger, Right? It's not there. It's not there. If it's there, we're bringing it to the text, right? We're reading it into the text. Uh, Go on to to Genesis 4, and you have Cain, who brings an unacceptable sacrifice to God, it says. I don't know why it was unacceptable. That's one of the questions. I'm not sure. Uh, But it was unacceptable. God isn't angry there. He just says that's not acceptable. Cain gets angry, and Cain kills his brother Abel. And then God comes to Cain and said, Cain, what have, you, what have you done? What have you done? Now, you could read that as, you could read that question angrily, right? What have you done? Right? You can read it that way. Or you can read it with more of this sorrow and regret. Cain, oh my goodness, what, what have you done? Where's your brother Abel? There's, anger's not in the story. And there's lots of other stuff that happens in Genesis. I mean, lots of crazy stuff that happens in Genesis. Tower of Babel, you know, all of these things. And God is not depicted as angry. It's not in the story. When everyone is evil all the time, when they've taken, it's kind of like if I, uh, if I painted a watercolor, my daughter Nora's here with me this morning, if I painted a watercolor and I had it sitting out and she walked in there and took my coffee and poured it on my beautiful painting. This is a beautiful one this time. She came in and poured coffee all over it, and I came in. Uh, I bet my response would not be, Nora, what did, what did you do? <laughs> I bet my response would be anger. I, I would be angry about that, because that's how I respond. Cain got angry. Other people get angry, but God is not depicted as angry in the story. I want to ask you a question. What if What if we've been reading the Old Testament, or at least the origin stories in Genesis, with a bad filter, with bad glasses on, right? What if we've been reading Genesis wrong? Or at least I have. If I've been reading it through the filter of anger, if that's from my lens, if God responds to me with anger, like I get, I read it all over the place in the Bible, God responds to sin with anger, but does he respond to me with anger? What if... God has a different response. Is it possible that the sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of approach to the scriptures twists the actual story that God is trying to tell? Maybe maybe we haven't discovered the God of Genesis 1. Okay, let me put out a couple other interesting things and then uh, then I'm going to give you some application around this. Um, Okay, First thing I want you to notice in this, uh, in this little poem, additionally, is that the earth was full of violence. The earth was full of violence. Um, I want you to notice that little word, full. If you've been in the Genesis series with us, where have you seen that word before? It's in Genesis chapter 1, right? God separates and then he fills the world, but what does he fill it with? 
goodness and bounty and flourishing. And he says to human beings, like when he creates Adam and Eve, at first he, he says, uh, go forth, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. God creates humans very good. And he says, you are very good. You're even better than the good creation. You're very good. Now go and fill the earth with very goodness. And now what does the writer say in this little poem, the earth has been filled with? Very goodness? The opposite, right? The earth has been filled with very violence. Violence has now filled the earth. God filled the world up with goodness. God gave humans the job of filling the earth with goodness. But humans have instead filled the world with violence. Violence. So that's one thing to notice in this poem. Another thing to notice in the poem. um, These two chapters use the word flesh a lot. Um, It's it's an interesting word. In Hebrew, it's the word basar the word flesh, and it literally means like, fl- like flesh. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a metaphor or anything like that. It's actual flesh. If, actually, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, where God uh, opens up Adam's rib cage and takes a rib to, to make the woman, it says that he closed, closed up the flesh, right? I've always wondered, like, did he stitch it or did he just magic? You know, I don't know how that works, but how does God, you know, close up the flesh? But he uses the word flesh there. So it's actually like the flesh. And what's interesting is you can use this word in two ways. Um, Not only that flesh, but the second way it's used is for animals and humans, okay? So it's really the part that we share with the animals. We, We share with the animals. Now, we're not just flesh, Because God created human beings. He created our flesh and fashioned it from the dirt and from the mud. And then he did what? He blew his breath of life into us. Uh, The the word for spirit and breath is the word ruach. He put his ruach. There's something going on in this passage where God begins to look and say, like, you have become fleshy. You become too fleshy. Where's my ruach? In fact, if you kind of read this whole thing where God is saying like, oh, we need to limit their life, right? Because the spirit will keep them alive forever. You need to limit that to 120 days because their flesh is rotting, literally rotting away. There's something happening to their flesh. Death has entered into their bodies and this violence and death all the time is beginning to to rot the way, which I'll come back to in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. But what What's happening a little bit in this is God is seeing, so let me look at this again. Um, So God looked upon the earth, he faced it, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted. He doesn't talk about humans anymore. He doesn't say all men. He really looks and says, like, they've become like animals. They've, if we are a if we are a mix of animal and God, right? Like, we've got animal flesh, but God has put his spirit in us, and God goes, oh, you're not even acting like people anymore. You've just become like the animals. The humans have debased themselves. It, it, it's like God looks at his precious children, and he sees that they've merely become animals. No wonder God sighs this deep sigh. Oh, I had dreams for you. Oh, how beautiful you could be. Oh, how amazing you could be. But no, you, you chose flesh instead. Third thing I want you to notice, and then, uh, then we'll move to kind of close, but the other piece of language in this little poem around that flesh is that the flesh has been corrupted. 
flesh has been corrupted. So I'm going to go a little deeper into that. Uh, there's an interesting word again here. It's the word shakat, and it means uh, spoiled and corrupted. And here's what I want you to think about. Uh, you have some, uh, some raw meat that you bought from Meyer or wherever, and you put it in the fridge, and you're going to cook it up, but you forget about it, uh, and then you go on vacation for three weeks. Uh, and then while you're on vacation, the power goes out, so your fridge gets warm, and then you come back. You just see where I'm going with this? Right? And you open the fr- you don't want to open the fridge right now, do you? Right? But now you open the fridge. What has happened to that meat? It has rotted and spoiled. That's the word picture for the word corrupt here about the flesh. God is saying, you, you have chosen death instead of life. Again, for God, his children have become unrecognizable. The only thing I could think about, if you're a Tolkien fan, uh, Lord of the Rings, like, this is the orcs, man. Like, there's some other, or if you're into zombies, you know, this, this is zombies, right? God, you're unrecognizable. God has made you for beauty and all these things, but all flesh has now become corrupted in their way on the earth. And again, all of this, violence instead of goodness is filling the earth. Humans have become more like animals than they have become like God. And now they're just corrupted and dying and becoming a pale representation of what God created them to be. Can you understand now why God sighed a deep sigh of regret? This is not what I intended for you. This is not what I wanted for you. It reminds me a little bit of the story of the prodigal son who goes off and he ends up in a pit with pigs eating pig slop. And I imagine his dad, his dad doesn't go and find him, but if his dad found him in the pig slop, what would he say? This isn't who you are. You were not a pig. You were created a little lower than the angels. You were crowned with the glory of creation. You were meant to be a king and a, a queen and a prince and a princess. And this is what you have chosen instead? You've chosen the path of darkness instead? Do you remember the question that Jordan asked you last week, if you were here? He asked you what cycle of sin needs to be broken in your life. It's a really good, really, really good question. Because God chose us and created us for goodness. And immediately in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 with Cain, so first with Adam and Eve, humans choose a different path. And in that little poem, the last line in their way, uh, their way has been corrupted. This was the way? The way that leads to life? And humans chose the way that leads to death. We call that sin. Sin is the cycle of pathology that we step into that rots away our humanity and we become like the animals and our flesh literally begins to rot and our father looks at us and says, you have become unrecognizable. Now, we don't have time for you to hear my whole testimony this morning, but I want to tell you a little bit about my testimony. Uh, I'm 50 years old. When I was about 18... I chose this path. I grew up with great Christian parents who taught me about the Bible and taught me about the way of the Lord, and I was raised in all of that. And there was a point in my life where I I walked away from that. I chose the other way. I made those same choices that Adam and Eve made and that Cain made, and I entered the way of death, and I became, I believe, unrecognizable to my Father in heaven. And I got down that path, and, and I didn't know how to return from that path. I didn't know how to t- return from that path except to have really a, 
a total do-over. Now, have you heard the word conversion before? Conversion, and you're converting something into something else? Well, honestly, I had been converted from something beautiful into something debased. I had been converted from a beautiful king or prince of heaven to an orc <laughs> or something else because I had chosen the wrong path. And I needed, a, a, I needed to die. I needed a redo. And I met Jesus in that moment. And Jesus invited me to put to death my old self. Jesus invited me to allow that old self to die, to let that flesh die, and to rise to something new. That's what we call conversion. It's converting back to what we were intended to be in the first place. Let me, let me give you an analogy here. I needed a flood in my life. You see, I imagined God looking at me and saying, Tom, I created you for so much more. Tom, I created you for beauty and goodness and to fill the earth with very good. And you have chosen to fill the earth with evil. Tom, you need a flood in your life. I needed my old life to die so that there could be a Genesis 2.0 in my life, a creation 2.0 in my life. A flood in some ways is about conversion from death to new life. The flood is a story of redemption and renewal. What's interesting in the Bible is that over and over, God uses death as a doorway to redemption. I don't understand it. I don't know why it is, but God uses death as the doorway to redemption. Let me go back with you. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, right? God comes in the garden and says, where are you? What have you done? Uh, Who told you we were naked, right? All this stuff. And then what does God do at the end of chapter 3? It's not explicit, but it is implicit. God kills an animal. And he takes the skin of that animal and he puts it around Adam and Eve to protect them. It's the very first act of redemption. It's the very first picture of death converting to life. I don't understand why Jesus had to hang on a cross. I don't get it, right? But God used death to turn the thing around. God uses death to bring redemption. I don't know if you know... And do any um, Narnia fans, C.S. Lewis, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? There's this beautiful line in the line in uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe goes, so the witch is the bad person in this. Aslan is the good person. Aslan says this about the witch. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there was a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she would have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Do you see what God does? That, that's C.S. Lewis, Lewis using an analogy to tell you the scriptural story. God somehow takes our evil and our death and says, well, we're going to die and we're going to rise again to something else. The corrupt, violent, evil, sinful things in our lives lead us to death and only a complete transformation, a flood, a baptism. Only a death and resurrection can truly lead us into a redemptive future. I was going to read... um, Romans chapter 8, but let me just read one part of Romans chapter 8. You can go to the last slide on that. 
Paul in the New Testament says this about us and Jesus around these things. Though your body is subject to death because of sin, because you've chosen this way, right? The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. In other words, there can be a flood of renewal in your life. There is a flood that can overcome the violence and the evil and the corruption and the chaos of your life. Jordan asked the question, what sin of, cycle of sin are you in that is leading you to death? Maybe you need a flood to start again, to put to death the old way and to step into the new way. We need, I need, and I think you need a baptismal flood in our lives to cleanse us, to redeem us, and to start over. We can't just get better. We can't just be better. We need God to flood our lives with his grace. Paul said this, that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being, birds, animals, and reptiles. We've made that exchange. But you were meant for goodness. You were meant for glory. You were created a little lower than the angels. And there were times in my life where I need to invite God to come in and to let things die. I needed those things to die. I needed a do-over. I needed a conversion. And the flood, I think in a profound way, is God giving humanity a do-over. You were created for goodness. You were made for beauty. And if you've messed that up, which you have, if you're like the early human beings, which you are, then this story is your story. And it's a story told throughout the Bible. When you've messed up, I want you to hear this as clearly as I can say it this morning. God is not angry with you. God doesn't look away from you. God looks at you and towards you and moves towards you. And he brings his redemption to you. But it may mean a flood in your life. It may mean inviting God to let you put to death the old stuff. We talk about baptism. Baptism is the sign of, that we take for this conversion experience. And baptism uh, originally means immersion. And, and it's both beautiful, but it's also a little bit gruesome. It's kind of like God holding you under the water until you die and rise to something else. I, I wonder... I wonder, um, if there's a cycle of sin in your life, where do you need a flood of conversion to invite God to pour his spirit into you and to make you new? Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You, you need to invite God into that place in your life. Maybe you've never invited God into your life and his spirit into your life, and you're still living in that place over here. I want to make the invitation this morning to say, God's not angry with you. But he does want you to die to that. He wants to put that to death so that you can rise to who you were intended to be. Beautiful, good, amazing, filling the earth with very good. Please don't be afraid of God. And please don't be afraid of a flood in your life. Because that cleansing flood can actually put to death 
the violence and the bad things, and you can rise to the self that God invited you to be. That's the invitation this morning. The invitation is to participate in the flooding spirit of God over your life. I hope as you read this story this week that you see it a little bit differently, that you see the power of baptism and renewal and creation 2.0 as God gives you a new chance in his redemptive blood. Would you pray with me? Father God, I just want to thank you that, that you don't respond the way that maybe I would respond to my children if they ruined something that I created. That you don't respond in anger at us. That you don't hide your face from us. That you don't turn away from us. That you don't just blot us out because you don't care about us. But know, God, that you bring your spirit and your recreation and your love back into our lives and you convert us and you change us and you help us to rise to our new selves. God, I pray that each of us, whether for the first time we're inviting your baptismal spirit to come over us and to transform us or whether we've done that and we're asking you in a specific place in our lives to help us stop the cycle of sin. God, I pray that you would help us to put to death the ways of evil in our lives, the ways of violence, the way of corruption, the ways of sin, the ways that we harm ourselves, the ways that we harm others. God, would you give us the courage to trust you, to look into your face and to invite you to a do-over, to invite your redemption, to invite you to put your blood as a covering over all of our sin and violence. And may we rise to be the beautiful kings and queens and princes and princesses that you intended us to be. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.